this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. And now, speaking for Christ and against communism. I want you to get out the largest bill that you have right now. And I said, because I was faithful, God's now given me a Cadillac. Hallelujah. The news anchors will be amazed at how great America is because God is great in America again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've probably made fun of them and the uncanniness of their makeup faces and sculpted hair. You've probably mimicked their accents and parroted their more outrageous, incendiary claims and their toothy, empty promises and slew of suspect miracles. Maybe you've been disgusted at their hypocrisy and reveled in the financial and sexual scandals that brought their flashy empires crashing to the ground. Or maybe you've been genuinely angry at them, furious at them, watching a family member conned out of their hard-earned money, while at the same time growing more radical in particular kinds of political beliefs that are now so aligned with the celebrity Christianity. Televangelists, in all their fiery, outdated pomp, are easy to not take seriously, especially now. But the influence of prominent and patriotic white evangelicals in American politics has been enormous since the foundation of the moral majority in the early 1970s, with unnerving roots that seem long forgotten, covered up in the stories they preach of societal decay, abortion, gay marriage, and more specifically for cranky elf Pat Robertson, lesbian witchcraft. But for millions, these figures still hold the promise of a better life through what is known as the prosperity gospel, convincing viewers that the generosity of their donations will return to them tenfold in fantastical financial ways. Because, as they command, spreading the gospel through these particular vessels of God is the best thing you can do for your fellow American. Since the financial prosperity of the 1950s, money has become an ultimate expression of God's favor. And of course, I could quote Bible verses all day that really paint these flashy kings and queens and the rich at large in a pretty bad light. But by now, that's all part of the parody. So here he is, the new American Jesus Christ, dripping in diamonds and fur, long hair flowing in the breeze as he drives a Rolls Royce to a seaside mansion, ready to wipe the day's makeup from his holy face. Because, as televangelist Jim Baker once said, I believe that if Jesus were alive today, he would be on TV. Tammy Faye Baker seems to be remembered by those who weren't her fans as a ridiculous woman with clownishly exaggerated makeup, cartoonish blonde hair, breast implants, loud outfits, and a high-pitched voice she often used to call and sing out happily to the Lord. She was a kind of peak Christian celebrity, along with her showbiz partner and husband, Jim Baker. After meeting in college, the two discovered they shared a love of performing for Christ, and they dropped out and went touring the revival tent circuit in the 1960s with Tammy's quirky songs and elaborate theater sets, which added up to a far more immersive Christian experience. The evangelical power couple would begin their TV empire in 1966 on Pat Robertson's new Christian Broadcasting Network with a modest little puppet show aimed at warming children to the blood of Christ. Their popularity would increase rapidly, and come 1974, the two would branch out on their own to create a worldwide Christian satellite cable network they called PTL, standing for both Praise the Lord and People That Love, but soon known to critics as Pass the Loot. 
And Tammy began flaunting it, wearing mink coats with designer purses, her and Jim riding in Cadillac limos, going on lavish Hawaiian vacations, living in several mansions, and owning, most often cited, an air-conditioned doghouse. Tammy Faye and Jim had mastered a rising scheme, taking in tax-deductible donations from their TV congregations and in-person services, while also being allowed a religious tax exemption. The assumed reason for this religious tax exemption is that these organizations, like nonprofits, fill a role that the federal government would otherwise have to, serving their communities through charitable works. While many churches did and do fulfill that promise, the looseness of the law's rules left much up for interpretation of what exactly a religious institution was and what they were allowed to do and not do while benefiting from the federal government. The tax-deductible and tax-exempt donations of the Baker's shows would eventually be shifted to building and maintaining the third most popular theme park in the nation, just behind Disney World and Disneyland, attracting 6 million annual visitors to its South Carolina location. Called Heritage USA, it was 10 times the size of Disneyland, with a 501-room grand hotel, a huge indoor mall, a golf course, an amphitheater, a skating rink, churches, Bible schools, timeshares, a 400-unit campground, an RV park, condos for permanent residents, a water park complete with the world's largest wave pool, and television studios where they filmed all their PTL shows. There were plays that depicted Jesus' death with special effects, and you could even have the experience of shopping in a fake Jerusalem marketplace. The PTL club would play testimonials from Heritage USA's mythic Upper Room, a full replica of the alleged location of the Last Supper in the Pentecost, open 24 hours a day, where people could come and have their psychic and physical ailments cured, and even, as one event promised, delivered from the practice of witchcraft on Halloween night. But Jim Baker had demons of his own to worry about come 1987, when he would step down from his position as head of PTL and Heritage USA when a former church secretary accused him of raping her several years before, and it was subsequently revealed that she had been paid almost $280,000 of PTL donations to keep quiet. Jim would only ever admit to a consensual affair, but that was enough to get the ball rolling. By the 1980s, the market for televangelism was skyrocketing, and the game was starting to look a little more like the movie Mean Girls than a ministry, as a pop preacher named John Ankenberg dug around for some gay dirt, soon announcing Baker as not only having an extramarital affair, but also as a homosexual that sleeps with prostitutes. And who would come to the rescue but longtime friend Jerry Falwell Sr., who would generously step in as a temporary company head, just for a couple weeks, he said, to help move the couple through the scandal as smoothly as possible so that they could be reinstated. However, new it girl Jerry Falwell would stab Jim and Tammy in the back almost immediately, calling his former BFF... The greatest scab and cancer on the face of Christianity in 2,000 years of church history. With all that drama out of the way, but with donations dwindling quickly and surprise debts popping up, Jerry Sr. had to sparkle up that tainted brand and fast. In an allegedly funny publicity stunt, Jerry made a promise to viewers that he would go down the big water slide at Heritage USA wearing a full suit and tie if they fulfilled the goal. Oh, Jerry, you're so crazy. The congregation would raise a whopping $20 million during the fundraiser to save God's own Disneyland, and Jerry would take that long, allegedly hilarious slide the water spraying around his suit like a biblical aura, the patron saint of the rising evangelical industrial complex. 
Twenty million dollars. Was it worth it? I don't know. Oh! Oh! It's cold. I'm ready. With circus tents at its center, what's sometimes been called the Fourth Great Awakening was spreading through the nation as events known as revivals traveled the country in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, surrounded by small fairs with food stands and live music that could draw in thousands. The charismatic preachers held inside these circus tents, sometimes spoke in tongues, induced ecstatic states in the audience, and healed the sick right there live. They spoke and shouted and sang out in the language of what is called the prosperity gospel, the promise that donations to these preachers and their mission of spreading the word of God in any way they see fit would return to the donor tenfold in miraculous and usually financial ways. This idea, which we explored in depth in our episode called Get Rich Quick, was convenient in that it also set up celebrity preachers as men living in God's favor because of their flagrant displays of wealth. It was proof that they had paid their dues to the Lord. But on the flip side of the prosperity gospel is the idea that those who are poor in material wealth are also poor in spirit, needing spiritual help only, not charity, to lift themselves out of their self-created poverty. These solicited donations were called seed money. You know, if you planted these little seeds, eventually brand new Cadillacs would sprout up from the ground. For these exciting spiritual circuses that just appeared one day as if by magic in each small town, audiences were ready to dole out the cash. And as you might imagine, like all of us, they loved a gimmick. And they got one in a prolific, charismatic preacher standing not four feet tall. Oh, my friend, listen to me. There are people in hell that would give the universe if they had your chance, if they had your opportunity. Too late. Too late. Hugh Marjo Ross Gortner was born in 1944 and would be ordained as a preacher just four years later, making him the youngest in history and by far the cutest. Like Cher, he just went by Marjo, that is, a combination of the names Mary and Joseph. And he was from an influential evangelical family that spanned generations. His mother Marge, who was described as exuberant, saw something special in her little boy. Marjo seemed to have no shyness to speak of and a talent for memorization and public speaking. His parents would go on to claim that as a toddler, Marjo had received a vision in the bathtub of God telling him that he needed to spread his message far and wide, and he needed to do it with a little pizzazz. And so he began performing sermons with an adorable flair, almost like a little pageant boy, but also with an unnerving intensity, with dramatic gestures and a lot of shouting about hell and the devil, about the great spiritual war between good and evil. Most famously, Marjo would officiate a wedding, a publicity stunt that both Life and Paramount Studios were invited to attend. Then his parents started teaching him the most important part of this whole shebang, how to wrestle money from the fawning, singing, sometimes fainting crowd. For example, he'd hawk allegedly holy items that could heal the sick and prevent people from dying. Marjo continued this act on the circuit for years, and by the time he was a teenager, he estimated that he had made his parents about $3 million, which, adjusted for inflation, would be in the ballpark of $20 million. Unsurprisingly, and in classic child star fashion, he would not see a penny of it. Behind the scenes, Marjo was suffering from a hellish stage mom, one who, sometimes along with his father, used emotional abuse, held pillows over his face, and even held him underwater until he got his whole act just right. They never beat him, Marjo said later, because they didn't want the bruises to show. At 16, Marjo was done. 
easily admitting that there had been no Christly visitation in that childhood bathtub, and that even as a four-year-old boy, he had never believed in God. He packed a bag and ran away to an opposite kind of life. Where else but to join the emerging hippie movement in Golden, California, that liberal snake pit to the rising Christian right, who were ready, finally, to break their long-held tradition of staying out of the ungodliness of politics. But with this rising tide of liberalism, the great spiritual war got political. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash americanhysteria50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now back to the show. During the civil rights battles of the 1950s and 60s, two evangelicals, both named Billy, would rise to prominence with very different approaches to their religion and politics. First, there was Billy Graham, likely the most prolific preacher in world history, reaching an estimated 2.5 billion people during his long career. Billy Graham was controversial for his ecumenism, that is, his unifying messages to all denominations to come together under Jesus. But he was also loved for that same reason, his soft charisma and positive, uplifting messages to the people. But as you might guess, he was also strongly homophobic, anti-women's rights, and anti-Semitic at various points, and originally supported segregation. However, the man slowly changed his mind, at least on that last point, and then he went out swinging. In New York, Mr. Billy Graham makes a dramatic denunciation. There's something wrong with human nature. What is it in the nature of men that causes men to lie and hate and have pride and bigotry and intolerance and racial intolerance? What is it that causes men to have these terrible things down inside of them? In 1953, Billy Graham performatively and controversially removed the barriers between the white and black seating sections of his church, taking a firm stance as he threatened to abandon the religious revival movement as a whole if they did not start supporting integration. In 1957, Graham asked Dr. Martin Luther King to join him for his 16-week revival, where 2.3 million people would watch them preach in places like Madison Square Garden, Yankee Stadium, and Times Square. Graham's influence was enormous, both in the religious world and in the political world, as he was spiritual advisor for every president from Harry Truman, the 33rd, to Barack Obama, the 44th trying to hold up his principle of bipartisanship, which for the most part he did, save for a little foray into Nixon territory. Now, I'm not singing Billy Graham's praises, because there is certainly a lot to criticize in the man, but it's worth comparing him to another popular evangelical radio and TV preacher, another Billy, 
Billy Hargis was one of the first televangelists to really make that concerted jump into politics, creating an organization in 1950 called the Christian Crusade, which took a more hardline approach to biblical political issues. He was an avid segregationalist who hated Martin Luther King, accusing him in his book, The Martin Luther King Story, of being indoctrinated into radical communism, helping to overthrow the American democracy. And now, speaking for Christ and against communism, here is Billy James Hargis. While the deadly enemies of the American people close in for their final stages of encircling our nation, Enemy nations within intensify efforts to chip away the foundations upon which American freedom rests. Hargis would soon meet a new BFF who would prove the perfect vitriolic patriot to match his fire and brimstone Christianity. Edwin Walker had been a decorated general in World War II and a staunch anti-communist, anti-unionist, and segregationalist. The two would hit it off profoundly, and together they would devise a national tour to get their patriotic Christian message out, calling it, kind of ominously, the Midnight Ride. It was put in no uncertain terms that they wanted to, quote, alert the American public of the enemy from without and the enemy from within. You know, the liberal dictatorship, the infiltration of academia and Hollywood by communist forces, and they even preached about, that's right, the mind control of fluoridated water. In the big picture, they presented communism as, essentially, Satan, and America as Jesus Christ. Before joining forces with Hargis, Walker had helped to lead the Ole Miss Riot of 1963 in protest against the first black person admitted to the University of Mississippi, activist James Meredith, who hoped that his action would put more pressure on the JFK administration to advance civil rights. Supported by a raging Governor Rod Barnett in opposition to federal interference, the town surrounding the university saw bands of cars and trucks flying Confederate flags with signs that said, The South Shall Rise Again, targeting black residents with threats and violence. It culminated in a massive riot of 3,000 students, led in part by Walker, who had also been inciting them through his radio program. Mississippi, it is time to move. We have talked, listened, and been pushed around far too much by the Antichrist Supreme Court. As they destroyed buildings they thought he might be hiding out in, 30,000 federal troops would be called to protect James Meredith and try to quell the property destruction. Two people were killed, hundreds injured, rocks and bottles were thrown, and shots were fired at police and civilians. Regardless, Hargis wanted Edwin Walker on this epic American road trip with him so they could begin their new mission of preaching politics. Each night was a kind of flamboyant play centered on a stage in front of 40 American flags. Hargis was a gifted speaker in his right, mopping the sweat off his forehead while he mesmerized the crowd with his wild gestures and his unbridled passion. Walker, however, usually just sat awkwardly in a chair beside the podium, smoking menthols with absolutely no expression on his face. His speeches that came after were far less effective, to say the least, but his identity as a war hero and staunch patriot helped weave together several valuable cultural ideologies and anxieties of the moment, intense anti-communism, fervent evangelicalism, and distrust of the federal government. It turned out that Hargis was not unlike his friend Edwin Walker, and it was discovered by said federal government that the Ku Klux Klan had funded the Midnight Ride in both South Carolina and Arkansas, with the investigation stretching into Hargis's potential role in the Alabama bombings. But no charges were ever filed. Through the use of male-solicited seed money, Hargis would eventually be netting the equivalent of $4 million a year, all tax-exempt and tax-deductible. 
His organization, however, would be disqualified from this status because of their very clear political dealings, breaking one of the few cardinal rules of religious tax exemption. This wasn't just a problem for Billy Hargis, however, and this right to exercise religious freedom while benefiting from federal funds would become a rallying point for the most powerful evangelical players right into the present day. In 1973, another right-wing religious political activist and commentator named Paul Weyrich founded the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank created explicitly to address liberal policies of taxation. And then he founded the Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, which worked to train conservative activists, fund conservative causes, and support conservative candidates. The CSFC invited Laszlo Pazder into the organization, and he would become Wyrick's right-hand man. Wyrick seemed to overlook the fact that Pazder was the former leader of the Arrow Cross Party in Hungary that had collaborated with Hitler during World War II. Pazder had served just two years in prison in Hungary before traveling to the United States in the 1950s, hoping to continue the fight against communism and to help guide the Cold War efforts. He worked his way into the ethnic outreach arm of the Republican National Committee, and by 1968, he turned it into a permanent unit called the Republican Heritage Group's Council, where he recruited Pazder and a handful of others who would be integrated, perhaps unknowingly, into government positions, up until the administration of George Bush Sr., when a handful of these high-up officials would be forced to resign after they were exposed as former Nazi collaborators. In addition to working closely with the former leader of the Arrow Cross Party in Hungary, Paul Weyrich also teamed up with Jerry Falwell Sr. to create, drumroll please, the Moral Majority. In fact, Weyrich even coined the term. This handful of evangelical influencers that would pull together to form the moral majority were reacting to a 1970 Supreme Court and IRS decision that private schools that still practice segregation would no longer be eligible for their tax-exempt status. 17 years after Brown versus the Board of Education ordered the integration of public schools. This caused outrage among evangelicals who felt that their religious freedom to segregate was coming under attack, and this threat to take away their government benefits was the last straw of 1970s liberalism and the final nail in the coffin of the evangelical value of staying out of politics. This landmark case centered around a university called Bob Jones, the most prominent Christian college in America, but it also applied to Jerry Falwell's private Liberty University in Virginia. For these two colleges, as well as for most white Christian private schools in general, segregation had been a backbone of policy and ideology, as Bob Jones Sr. himself put it in a 1920s Easter Sunday address called, Is Segregation Scriptural? His conclusion went, quote, If you are against racial segregation, then you are against God Almighty. This had been a belief in American culture all the way back to the 1600s. And throughout history, preachers had used ridiculous biblical interpretations to support slavery, Jim Crow laws, and then racial segregation. The court battle over this infringement on what they called religious freedom would last for more than a decade. And in 1975, as the IRS was putting pressure on the university again, they would finally change their policies to officially admit black students, but only those that were already married out of fear of racial mixing. Any interracial dating of the student body or any affiliation with any group that supported interracial relationships would lead to immediate expulsion. In order to not bend to the federal government's will, they would lose their tax-exempt status. And Bob Jones University would keep their ban on interracial dating all the way until the year 2000. 
If you're like me, you kind of assumed that the moral majority, that is, the Christian right, started as a reaction to the advancement of gay rights and other gay liberal feminist witchcraft signs of social decay, but most prominently, the evils of abortion. The fact that I thought this to be true is not a coincidence, and Wyrick himself would admit that the moral majority's sudden anti-abortion rally and cry was simply a sensational kind of moral crusade that could easily cloak their real agenda. Contrary to popular belief, prior to the late 1970s, abortion was not high on the list of evangelical grievances, largely considered a Catholic issue. Though Roe v. Wade would cause a minor stir, it would be a footnote compared to the unbridled passion of the next several decades. It all started with a preacher, sometimes called the intellectual godfather of the Christian right, Francis A. Schaeffer, who created a series of anti-abortion films, the first of its kind. Teaming up with pediatric surgeon C. Everett Koop, the pair toured the country with graphic and emotional media that promoted the idea that abortion would lead inevitably to the mass killing of live babies. Whatever happened to the human race is being washed down the sink drains with the murdered remains of the unborn babies in today's hospitals. One scene shows, dramatically, a bunch of plastic baby dolls lying, presumably deceased, on the shores of the Dead Sea. Evangelicals all over the nation were hearing the message that little babies were being satanically brutally slaughtered by liberals of all stripes, which, as we know, has always been a potent piece of atrocity propaganda. This tour would influence our political landscape up until the present day, as the religious right flexed their muscle power again, sending sympathetic evangelicals en masse to the polls. Many in this crusade started calling themselves the New Abolitionists, a contradiction that could not be more nauseatingly stark when we know the underlying history. The moral majority would see their first major political victory in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan, whose policies would take shape in part through this powerful lobby. Now I realize it's fashionable in some circles to believe that no one in government should encourage others to read the Bible. That we're, we're told that we'll violate the constitutional separation of church and state established by the founding fathers in the First Amendment. The First Amendment was not written to protect people and their laws from religious values. It was written to protect those values from government tyranny. As governor of California, Reagan had passed the most liberal abortion law in the state in the late 1960s. But 13 years later, likely at the encouragement of the moral majority, he became the anti-abortion presidential candidate vowing and eventually fighting to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then in 1982, with eyes on that long-term prize, the moral majority came incredibly close to a victory for their underlying goal, as the Reagan administration attempted to reverse the IRS policy and restore tax exemption for schools with varying racial policies. At the announcement of the reversal, however, civil rights groups sounded the alarm, and Reagan was forced to reverse his position yet again, causing many on the evangelical right to accuse him of betrayal. More after this. And now, back to the show. Cranky elf and moral majority fixture Pat Robertson would make an unsuccessful bid at president in 1988, hoping to fill in the Reagan void with an even more extreme version of the Christian right, as he also made a killing repackaging stories of the Jewish Illuminati and stoking the satanic panic, pushing sensational stories of the gay agenda, all episodes you should listen to for more great televangelist content. 
Pat's favorite satanic scapegoat became feminine gay men and butch lesbians, usually lesbian witches, yet again using shaky biblical interpretations to justify discrimination. Pat Robertson also claimed that gays were using blood-dipped rings that could prick the finger of any good straight white Christian if they were just shaking hands innocently, infecting them with AIDS just because they were evil enough to want to do something like that. Following suit, Jerry Falwell would call AIDS the gay plague, while televangelists also painted homosexuals as pedophiles recruiting Christian children in public schools into their depraved lifestyles. Like they did for the issue of abortion, members of the moral majority would also create and distribute suspiciously explicit videos explaining gay male practices that would eventually be watched by those in the highest levels of government. But by the late 1980s, televangelists would take a serious hit to their political and social power as several high-profile scandals rocked their credibility. Billy Hargis, who you'll remember as that political preacher, would be outed for a sexual relationship he had with five students, both women and men. Not long after, his partner in crime, Edwin Walker, would be arrested for public lewdness in a Dallas Park bathroom for fondling and propositioning a male undercover cop. It happened again the next year. There are many more, of course, including the most famous of all, Jim Baker's, not for his sexual transgressions, but instead for the serious accounting fraud he committed in the late 80s, when it was discovered, unsurprisingly, that he'd been funneling millions of tax-exempt donations into his personal bank account. Tammy Faye, however, would never be indicted on any charges. Televangelists would shoulder through the Clinton administration until they got their next ally in George W. Bush, and they worked side by side on the whole sanctity of marriage thing. But these megastars would seriously lose political favor during the progressive Obama administration as marriage equality was finally passed federally and televangelists were relegated to the back seat of the political conversation. But as we've seen in the last five years, evangelical entertainment found a perfect partner in Donald Trump, who had run on the familiar platform of apocalyptic others and the prosperity gospel his family had long believed in religiously, but without so much of the religion involved. Trump had already been cemented as a possible prosperity president in the American psyche by his long history of cartoon wealth. But elite evangelicals found in him a love of money and a passion, it seems, for tax evasion, and also the kind of fiery, unapologetic rhetoric that railed against liberal political correctness and at its very heart, communism. One by one, prominent evangelicals endorsed Donald J. Trump for president, led by the now-disgraced Jerry Falwell Jr., who, as most of us have probably heard, recently got caught up in a sex scandal of his own with the pool boy, involving both him and his wife, forcing him to step down as head of his father's Liberty University. Jerry Jr. would soon be followed by a whole bunch of other major next-gen evangelical figures like Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham, who was a prolific Obama birther conspiracy theorist, which led him to admire Donald Trump. Billy Graham, however, would never endorse Donald Trump, and he also refused to align himself with his son's more inflammatory opinions. After sowing the seeds of their endorsements, all they could do was wait. But they would not be disappointed when exit polls showed that 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And like Reagan, he got to work right away, revoking the Obama-era directive that defined discrimination against the law as also applying to the LGBTQ community, which was taken as a serious threat to the tax status of religious schools who refused to admit these students because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Trump would also go on to reinstate the tax-exempt status of a now-reformed Bob Jones University. 
We break and divide every demonic confederacy against the election, against America, against that who you have declared to be in the White House. We break it up in the name of Jesus. We lose confusion into every demonic confederacy directed right now at this election. That was Paula White the day after the election, a pretty blonde televangelist investigated in 2011 for using donations to pay for a mansion in private jet. She refused to cooperate with that investigation. She's been credited with saving Donald Trump single-handedly when they became friends in the 2000s. As she tells it, he asked for her blessing to run for president, saying, Would you bring some people? some really great people around me to pray. I really want to hear from God. Miraculously, he got that Republican nomination, with Paula claiming that he was sanctioned by God and that his opponents, quote, operate in sorcery and witchcraft, going on to say, any persons or entities that are aligned against the president will be exposed and dealt with and overturned by the superior blood of Jesus. Paula White now holds a government position as head of the White House's Faith and Opportunity Initiative, and now she is also using COVID to solicit donations for her church, admitting that they may not heal the physically sick, but they will heal the spiritually sick. Paula's friend, Jim Baker, came back on the airwaves after his short stint in prison, only five years, and now he's doing the doomsday prepper thing, hawking overpriced freeze-dried food and selling his silver solution that cures not only COVID-19, but also all sexually transmitted diseases for some reason. But be careful, because Jim Baker has also made the proclamation that God will punish those who make fun of him. I guess I'll see you in hell. Speaking of making fun of evangelicals, you'll remember that we left little Marjo in the heart of the hippie movement, a total non-believer who nonetheless returned to the revival circuit to perform because it was all he knew how to do to make a living. But eventually, the guilt of preaching hell for cash won out. But that wasn't it for Marjo, and he would go on to return to the public eye again in 1972 when he was in his late 20s, joining a visibly stoned documentary crew of obvious hippies pretending to be making a nice little evangelical church documentary. They followed him as he preached the circuit with his same brand of ecstatic fervor, raking in the cash with his fellow preachers behind the scenes, revealing a huckster underbelly of charismatic preaching and seed donations that he had grown to despise. Hallelujah, Father created these things for his people if they'll use them right. Bless God, I'm going to drive that Cadillac down here and get it dusty and dirty and use it for God. Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus! Marjo would respond to the accusations that popped up from his religious critics. Quote, A lot of people have charged that I made the movie for money. That's ridiculous. In five years, I would have been on top and probably a millionaire. One thing a lot of people forget about is the tax advantage. I was tax deductible. The film, called Marjo, would win the 1972 Oscar for Best Documentary Film, but this expose wouldn't be viewed beyond the more liberal circles, and it certainly wouldn't be enough to stop the coming power tide of the religious right. Cranky old elf Pat Robertson is still at it today at freaking 90, sitting at a net worth of more than $100 million, with several failed apocalypse predictions under his belt, including a recent one, as well as several mansions and a racehorse named Mr. Pat, as he shall henceforth and forever be known. If you're like me, you'll catch him sometimes when you're trying to catch reruns of Pretty Little Liars because for some reason they're on the same network now. But if you look deeper into Mr. Pat, you'll find that he is the son of one of 19 senators that signed the Southern Manifesto in an attempt to block the federal government from imposing integration after Brown versus the Board of Education. And as we've seen, the seeds that made the moral majority and the seeds they planted keep bearing their dangerous fruits. Here's Mr. Pat from just a few months ago. It's not just the statement, of course, black lives matter. They're talking about destroying the nuclear family 
they're talking about uh, destroying essentially Christianity as, as being racist. <clears throat> All the way through, they want to upend the capitalist structure and destroy America. Pop evangelicalism can be a vessel for those who want to, as is American tradition, flamboyantly con the public out of their cash. But also, these old-timey hucksters, segregationalists, and even straight-up exiled fascists can sneak a lot of their own agenda through in the name of religious freedom. And they can find support in certain opportunist politicians who know the power of the evangelical vote. Through inflaming ingrained cultural prejudices in their fans, they can use classic atrocity propaganda of babies in danger, of the perversion of children, whether through racial mixing at first and then the gay agenda that stretches into the present day. Behind the scenes, the real rallying points seem to have been tax exemptions, the desire to break federal law while raking in federal benefits, while at the same time protecting their power in the social hierarchy, all based on dubious Bible quotes pulled from an ancient document, a document that skewers the rich and blesses the poor. What really sucks is that this industry is the core spirituality for so many. Not only do those preachers promise a better life fantastically, but they also claim that with your donation, you can spread the prosperity to others through the same saving grace that you yourself are receiving. It's a very simple and very human hope to exploit. It's a gut-wrenching con. The seeds keep being planted, sure, sprouting Cadillacs and Rolls Royces and seaside mansions and private jets, but they never bear the promised fruits that might alleviate the financial stress of those donating to this story. And certainly, these miracles don't happen for the millions of impoverished kids and adults, disproportionately black and queer people, the very groups they've actively discriminated against. But of course, as the prosperity gospel says, they just aren't honoring God quite enough to deserve that air-conditioned doghouse. The prosperity gospel is a promise, and a promise is always easier than an action. Despite their many transgressions, some televangelists have influenced their audiences of millions in progressive ways. When Tammy Faye Baker entered the pop Christian world, she and Jim were coming from the Pentecostal tradition that just didn't have the same fire and brimstone backbone as evangelicalism did. And Tammy believed first and foremost that unconditional love is the highest order of God. Part of why Tammy Faye was so loved in her heyday was that she took a totally different approach than Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, believing she could do more to help her audience by entering more controversial and realistic territory. And so she turned the lens on herself. She talked frankly about sex, about her breast enhancement surgery, and about her addiction to prescription drugs. She also invited black people onto her show, as well as gay men, and even HIV-positive gay men, to share their stories, which was revolutionary at the time. And Tammy Faye, in all her years, would never condemn homosexuality, despite being steeped in a culture that did. Like Billy Graham removing the racial barriers of his church and taking Martin Luther King on a national tour, the millions that would see these symbols of civil rights being preached by a person they trust with their souls, well, it probably made a difference. One person can plant many different kinds of seeds in their lifetime, and according to how you define it, these seeds can lead to very different kinds of prosperity. After the Bakers lost everything, Tammy Faye divorced Jim and began to try to rebuild her life. In 2000, she would be the subject of a documentary hosted by famous drag queen RuPaul called The Eyes of Tammy Faye. It turned out that her progressive stances throughout the deadly homophobia of the 70s, 80s, and 90s had not gone unnoticed and had not been forgotten. Tammy Faye stated that, quote, when we lost everything, it was the gay people that came to my rescue, and I'll always love them for that. Through her years on the air, she had become a kind of underground drag queen icon, a larger-than-life, blown-out, campy version of American femininity that drag tries to emulate. 
she would go on to co-host a show with her dear gay friend called the Jim J and Tammy Faye Show, and she would be a fixture at pride parades for years to come, where she became known as the ultimate drag queen. Her son, Jay Baker, was just 12 years old when his father went to prison and his family was sorely rejected from their community. After years of struggling with substance abuse and emotional turmoil, he would come back to tweak the family business and become a self-described punk preacher, as well as a long-term activist for LGBTQ civil rights and now the Black Lives Matter movement. Jay Baker is currently running the Revolution Church in Minneapolis, where there is no light-soaked stage, no semicircle of American flags, no water slide that makes you a saint, and no one turned away. It's just a small congregation, still broadcast worldwide, that holds their services in a bowling alley bar. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're going to explore more culty characters to find out why any of us could fall prey to charismatic leaders. But next week, we're really excited to explore the rich history of Black televangelism and its place in culture and politics with Dr. Lerone A. Martin, author and professor of religion and politics at Washington University. The nonprofit we'd like to highlight today is Jay Baker's Revolution Church that we mentioned at the end of the episode. They usually just like to pass the hat around the bowling alley, but I thought we could give them a little bit of our very own American hysteria, punk rock, Christ-like love. Just head to revolutionchurch.com. Please think about becoming a patron of our show for extra episodes and videos, sneak peeks and early episodes, and now you can even contribute ideas for upcoming topics. We're about to revamp the whole shebang, so expect some cool things coming to Patreon soon. And also, come find us on social media. All the links are in our show notes. And if you love our show, leave us a review. It really helps us so very much. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound designed by Clear Commo Studios, co-researched and written by Riley Smith, and co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting by Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And now to play us out, here's one of the scariest people I've ever seen, televangelist Kenneth Copeland. The media said what? <laughs> the media said Joe Biden's president. Ha 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 Have a great week.